Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Let's start a brand new week of Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Hello, Kieran. Hello, Ken. Hello, Hi, Aaron. And what a lovely week it is. Oh, yeah? Lovely day, I am. Well, yeah. no, Ken, uh, do you want to hear the very latest chatter from the Irish Times elevator? Oh, go on. Uh, <laughs> it's promised good for the week. So oh, really? That's what I heard when I got in the elevator just this very afternoon. Okay, so, well, that sounds, sounds great. I mean, I haven't checked it out independently myself, but if I know one thing about elevator chatter, it's that it's almost <laughs> always on the money. So I've caught up on the shows that I missed while I was on holidays last week. Mm-hmm. Good job, first of all. Excellent job, I must Thanks say. So. I thoroughly enjoyed them. But Ken, 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 Ken. Oh, no, what is it? Just my heart was broken and it won't mend. Why? Listen to you recount your struggles as an aspiring child actor. Oh, yeah. Playing a tree in your school production. That was terrible. Sleeping Beauty. What apparently dresses a Dalek. I mean. Well, it was just such a. It was just a kind of heavy, rigid costume. I mean, I couldn't move. You know that I, I believe that I've, I've never been able to dance since that day. <laughs> I think that I. I just I, dancing for me is just something other people do. Mm. It's not know, a joyful expression of anything. For with you. their live joyful bodies. And I'm just standing there encased in cardboard, <laughs> staring, to, staring out through a pair of tiny, a tiny eye slot. And it's, it's kind of never really changed for me. Well, I know you pined back then for a speaking role, but... Pined. You, you really should be careful what you wish for. Uh, Sorry, it took me a second to get the pied reference. Sorry, I'd be I was more of an oak, <laughs> yeah, a mighty oak. But <laughs> if you, why, why should I be? I mean, if I if I'd spoken in that, maybe my whole life could have turned out differently. Let me recount my own painful experience again. Oh my god! I want you to imagine the scene in St. Lawrence's National School in Kilmacud, circa 1988. Right. A budding young thespian. That's me. You're eight years old. Yeah, I wanted to make my mark on that year's nativity play. Right. So when the teacher asks, "Who wants to play Joseph?" Of course, my hand shoots up, yeah. along with quite a few others. It was a prime role, really. Yeah, I mean, especially for young boys. There's, there's Joseph, Mary, the three kings, uh, possibly a sheep, a goat, a cow, the baby Jesus, probably played by a doll. Angel Gabriel, of course. Angel, <laughs> is the angel Gabriel? Yeah, he, uh, one of the angels. Anyway, there's an angel. There's, listen, oh, a shepherd. 
Yeah. Shepard talks to the angel. Angel talks to Shepard. So, it's, so, a good, it's a good scene, though. There are few roles, but, but obviously, you know, if Christian Bale was in this interview, like, he would probably be playing Joseph. <laughs> of course he would be, and so would I if I had my way. The teacher throws in the rider, though. If you're offering yourself for the role and you don't get it, if you're, if you're keeping your hand up here and you don't get Joseph, one of you will have to play the Virgin Mary instead. Right. Suddenly, uh, most of the hands came shooting straight back down into their pockets from whence they came. You're an eight-year-old boy. You don't, you, you, to be honest, you, you want to play somebody of your own gender for a start. Yeah. You understand Joseph a little bit better yeah. than you understand what Mary's up to. Well, I mean, it's motivated. I mean, it's, it's an interesting, it's a compelling role in a lot of ways. So did you, you know, support, but also some suspicion, I'm sure. You know, there's a lot to tap into there with the role of Joseph. Just two hesitant, shaky little mitts remain in the air when this was thrown in, belonging to myself and some other young show business risk taker. Right, so you were doing the Eddie Redmayne on it. Mm-hmm. And the part of Joseph went to? You. No, the other guy. Oh. So there's only one thing for it, Ken. I draped a thick, light blue blanket over my head <laughs> and soldiered on as Mary. <laughs> not a happy boy, not a happy boy at all. Well, well, well I mean, what's wrong with the... What's wrong? I mean, how did, how did you ultimately interpret the role? Well, I called my mum this morning to check up on this. Right. Because it's an incident she remembers taken, yeah. Uh, <laughs> she, was, she was there saying, you should call Fina. Uh, Fina's my cousin. Uh, who has not stopped laughing at this ever since um, ever since she saw his performance. So I was, apparently I was in... Uh, my mother hesitated to call it a sulk, but I, I wasn't o- overjoyed at what I was trying to portray here. Yeah. So when it came to my killer line, I delivered it with a striking lack of passion. Apparently I skulked onto stage, approached Joseph, and informed him, I am with child. <laughs> at which point I produced the baby Jesus from nowhere from underneath that shawl of mine and started flinging him about with abandon uh, just showing total indifference to the physical safety of the son of God I am with child yeah. I like the way they I, I, didn't I, I, update the, the yeah. lingo I, I, I just would have much preferred to have seen like a, a lengthy birthing process a full you know, three hour uh, grueler of a delivery McDevitt just go deep into the role. Apparently that I wasn't, uh, I didn't fully explain where the baby had come from. Yeah. But, I mean, it, it's, it's a hard one to explain. Uh, a lot, well, it was a lot a of theologians have tried to explain it. It was a hard one for Mary time. to explain, yeah. Mm. Yeah. She got away with it. I mean, yeah, <laughs> whatever, you know. Yeah. There ended my acting career, so just uh, careful what you wish for on that one. Important announcement regarding podcasts. Like, you right? I am with child. What is, what, what, is a, what is a more damaging, I mean, certainly I've never played, you say you've never danced again, Ken. Yeah. I've never taken you part never in it. You've never acted again. I've never really, no. Yeah, no, I haven't. Well, oh, you know, there's, those things do, uh, they do leave a, an impact, you know. Maybe it's only apparent what happened years after the event. Mm. I was, uh, I was the, the narrator for our nativity play. Oh, yeah, good role. Fine role. Didn't have to memorize any lines either, so that was good. Yeah. I mean, I always kind of felt like, you know, it's not really acting, though, is it? You know, you're a, an unbiased observer. You're just reading. Yeah. Well, I mean, get... it's, 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 it's a style of reportage, I suppose, which I have taken into my into my, my working life. Yeah. So, you know, the, it continues to resonate for all three of us. Yeah. <laughs> Important announcement regarding podcasts later this week. Due to St. Patrick's Day falling on a Thursday, we're going to delay the release of our second batch of podcasts until Friday. And public holidays, not great days to release shows, we have found through experience when everybody's off doing stuff, you know, real life mm. <laughs> things, as opposed to working, at which, you know, when you actually spend most of your time... When online. everyone listens, yeah. uh, as we found, so... And besides the All Art, the all Art and Club final... Finals, I should say, and Man United Liverpool are both on Thursday. The so mother of all second legs. It makes more sense to so, yeah. hold Let's off and react to all that on Friday. For those of you podcasters who are not Irish, by the way, St. Patrick is a Welsh lad. 
came over here, saw that dastardly snake epidemic that was yeah. sweeping the country in the 5th yeah. century. And yeah. Lost all his money in a pig farming venture, like yeah. Johan Cruyff. <laughs> uh, and, went, and went into religion in a big way. Uh, oh, sorry, St. Patrick did. Uh, pig farming venture. There was an ill-fated pig farming venture, wasn't there? Well, for, for Johan Cruyff? No, for, for Johan Cruyff, yeah. yeah really? He, yeah, he lost all his money. In pig farming? Yeah, yeah. That's why he re- that's why he unretired. Oh. I don't know the he, he was he was retired like nineteen seventy eight seventy nine, went into pig farming, went about as well for him as it did for St Patrick, mm. had to come back and play for um, Feyenoord. Yeah, I don't remember the <laughs> I don't remember the the pig farming debacle mm. at the start of the St Patrick uh, fable. But oh, he did. I think what happened was that he ended up eating so much of the pigs' food that they wasted away to nothing, and he eventually thought. Really? Is this all there is? So he ate the swill rather than give the swill to the pig and then kill the pig and eat the pig. Well, I don't even know if that would be good business, really. But I do remember learning that he had to subsist on the food that the pigs were meant to eat. But pigs eat a lot. So I don't know if there was enough really left over. See, they got rid of the snakes, as we mentioned. So for this, we thank him on March 17th every year by (laughs) drinking obscene and sometimes dangerous amounts of alcohol. Speaking of drinking obscene and dangerous amounts of alcohol... Cheltenham starts tomorrow, Tuesday. Ah, oh, seamless. The Gold Cup is on Friday. He's back. But for once, that race could be overshadowed on the last day of the festival. The reason is that the big amateur race, the Fox Hunters Chase, will feature a jockey who has only taken up the sport in the last year in her mid-30s. Although she did have a reasonable sporting career before this, Victoria Pendleton, double Olympic gold medal cyclist. She's going to realise her ambition of racing at Cheltenham, which sounds like a great story, but a lot of people involved in the sport are not particularly happy. Essentially saying, look, she can't, Right, she's only been doing this for a few months. She's look at the falls she's taking. You shouldn't be taking these falls if you're uh, the type of falls she's taking. If you're, and uh, if you know what you're doing, and you're just not up to it, could even be a danger to yourself. That's the gist of it. We're going to chat to Mike Cattermall, presenter with at the races about all that. Uh, personally, I'm quite excited to see how she goes. I think it's a pretty commendable achievement, but we'll see anyway if we can get a bit of a, get a tip for you for the Gold Cup while we're chatting to Mike. Right now, it's a rare positive weekend for Ireland and the Six Nations. What a weekend, 20 tries in three games, almost half of them scored by Joe Schmidt's Harlem Globetrotters. Is this the closest, Simon, that this Six Nations has come to matching the last day of last year's, the last day of last year's tournament? Yeah, that's the question I'm trying to ask you. Yeah, it was pretty good. Um, and you wonder how much, how significant the weather is because it was the first really good weekend. And suddenly, well, all the teams involved, except maybe France, tried to embrace. I know Italy were essentially demolished, but they did score two good tries. And I was going to say. You know that debate about the yeah. Southern Hemisphere, Northern Hemisphere thing? Maybe there is some credence to the fact that the weather is completely different. Ken, you don't know you want to come in there? It's all about the weather. Well, it is. Well, it may not be the worst idea in the world to play this tournament at the end of the season, would it not be? Or all built stadiums like like the Millennium Stadium have closed roofs. Yeah. Well, no, then you go from the Six Nations into the summer tours and there's at least a semblance of a, of a season there. Am I am I? Well, you're forgetting about the um, small issue of club rugby. Well, no, you finish it. You play it, you play it and, and the so May is given over to the Six Nations. May but and the of June. Oh, I mean... Isn't, it, isn't part of the charm of it also that some of it is played in horrible 
winter weather. Yeah, it turns out that doesn't really prepare your teams to win a World Cup. Right? It's been charming for a hundred years or so, Cup, but yeah. I mean, you gotta, you know, you gotta change the times. Who cares about the World Cup? Yeah, I, I mean, come on, we're not seriously making weather as an excuse, are we? It's a joke. I mean, why not have the why not have the World Cup played in winter weather then? That seems like a more practical alternative. Just all slog it out. I mean, New Zealand will still win. Surely. I mean, it was <laughs> sorry, it was <laughs> played in winter weather in New Zealand. Every time, it, every time it happens in the Southern Hemisphere, it's in, it's in the winter, and we still lose. So it's nothing to do with the weather. It's just to do with the poor you know, quality of Northern Hemisphere. Okay, it was extremely bad luck that it was excellent weather in England during the last World Cup. Well, look, the, that was in, the only deciding factor. The, it, that, there was always going to be a risk of that happening September, Indian summer kind of time. But, you know, it seems to me we've got bad weather. I mean, it wasn't in New Zealand World Cup 2011. Horrific. There was some bad weather Well, do you remember? It wasn't the final in, in the sort of. I do remember Ken Burley being very exercised over the fact that Australia, the, Ireland beat Australia, and a large part of the excuse was that it was raining that day. Yeah, As though the Australians hadn't seen, seen rain this. in quite a number of years. If only Ken Burley was here now, he could maybe explain himself. Oh, well. Bit, oh well. Shane Jennings and Jerry Thornley have just arrived in studio. Fellas, how are you? Good I presume you enjoyed that a little bit more. It's a funny one. Simon Zebo said afterwards, Shane, that it felt like the first time in a while we were properly enjoying ourselves out there. Uh, aside from enjoyment, is, is that almost enough at this stage of the season after all the hits we've taken that we could go out and enjoy a game against a poor team? Uh, yeah, and it's nice for him to say it. And it, it was evident watching the game that there were a lot of smiles on their faces. And it was funny when someone making a break, you could see the enthusiasm. They were hungry to get there. People were sniffing tries and they wanted tries. And that's great to be a part of. And I think hopefully the public, we've been criticising them of late that people actually just accept. And you know what? They did well. Fair play to them. They got their win, scored some nice tries. They had to play what was in front of them, whether it was good, bad, and different. Yeah, it's been discussed. But the reality is they scored a lot of tries. They scored one magic try, and uh, they were pretty good. Rory Best start were like good, like some difficult balls. That I was just like trying to see, do you know what? The tries kind of cover a lot of stuff, but there were some balls where he hit Devon that they were double pod, they were marked. So when they actually go back over the video, they'll be happy with a lot of the set, per, set piece work they did as well. So I think all in all, it's a great one, and hopefully confidence will go from that because... They're going to come up against a different team this weekend and if they're loose with carries or they're loose with offloads, they'll probably be punished a lot more than they were at the weekend. So I think that's probably the the realistic outcome of uh, what happened at the weekend. Yeah, so it's easy to say that we learned nothing from this, but we did learn that we can offload, certainly when we're in a relaxed frame of mind, uh, we, can, we can throw the ball around a bit. And obviously Schmidt made big play afterwards in the interviews saying... Well, yeah, that's fine. We can do that when this. He was almost being defensive and seemed very downbeat, actually. He seemed mildly annoyed despite his team scoring nine tries. Uh, Zebo maybe deserves a run now at fullback, for example. What was your big takeaway from it, Jerry? I was excited going along to the game because the weather was good, um, because they usually were down quite a few players. And I, like I've said here in the studio before, I always thought if this team got one or two tries early on in the game that they could cut loose, the confidence would flood back into them. And I do think that at the moment, Simon Zebo adds so much more in an attacking sense. But there, when you have a st- he's the one joker in the pack. He's the one joker in the pitch that you know, a fullback can come from anywhere. And he takes really good lines. Um, and he really accelerated. And he was looking to make something happen. And he brings others into the game. And I mean, the offload was, again, another example, like the long pass for Felix Jones' try, like uh, the back flick off his heel in Cardiff. He has an X factor to his game. Now... Uh, no doubt he will be the most uncomfortable reviewing the first Italian try, the way he bit in. Ireland got a bit narrow there. And that'll give Joe plenty to work on and give out to them, which Joe likes. Um, but I thought that 
yeah, it's a very interesting advent to this team that the attacking thrust from Simon Zebra fullback. I think that's his fifth, if not his sixth game at fullback for Ireland this season. So he's getting the grips of the position. He doesn't cover the backfield as well as Rob Carney. He's not as strong in the air. He's not as strong in contact. He probably doesn't wrestle on the ground enough for Joe Sliking. But I even saw him hit a ruck. <laughs> like the, the clearing out, I thought, was the key factor, the speed of the ball. It really stretched Italy. That's the work of Josh van der Flyer, probably the most unsung hero of that team, but his work rate and his effectiveness the breakdown is just savage. And it's, it's, you can see now clearly why Joe's elevated him so quickly to the team. And he just, whether it was outside, mostly the outside channels against Wales was a lot, a lot of the time, the inside channels off Murray, he just is adding another dimension. There's flaws still in his game, but I think, yeah, he's probably worth another look. Shin, you know what's really different about Zebo from the rest of the players is the lines, maybe it's the way he runs or the intent he has. He runs as if the next phase won't be a rook as if it might be an offload or, or just somebody taking a quick pass. Whereas most players, they sort of take the contact expecting to fall and, and the flankers or whatever coming over them. Is that, do you need one player like that? Do you think that's a huge positive? Can that be a negative? No, I think it's a positive. Uh, when it's managed and when it's balanced with the kind of relationship with other back three players or other backline players when we're talking about Simon Zebo, And I think he deserves a lot of credit because, listen, I'm never hypercritical of players. I always try and take a realistic outcome. But I have been kind of questioning some of his play in terms of his slappiness, like Jerry, you said about on the ground and things like that. But fair play to him. He gave it a crack. And that's the way he plays. And, you know, I'd love to see him just do that the whole time. And actually, if that's Simon Zebo, let Simon Zebo be Simon Zebo and go for those offloads. And if they don't pay off, then okay, listen, revert to what you should be doing, but make sure that you're doing ticking your boxes all the way along. I know that might seem a bit kind of contradictory, but you got to do what you got to do. And I think like he has an opportunity at fullback, and he did very, very well. Like the thing that annoyed me at the start of the game was that Conor Murray got the ball, did a box kick that worked out very well. Sire Andrew Trimble regained it, and then he kicked again. I was like, oh, for God's sake, why are we kicking? Then when they held on to the ball and they played, they gave the opportunity for the likes of Zebo, for our back three, for the guys like Fergus that came onto the pitch for blood substitutions to actually get into the game. So I think when you hold on to the ball and you retain the ball, and you heard Eddie Jones talk about it when after his game uh, against the Welsh, and do you know what? In the last 20 minutes, we just gave them possession. We kicked away possession. You're working so hard to get the ball. And to retain it, why would you give it away? So I think hopefully that's a learning where they go, do you know what, we were good with the ball. We retained it. Yes, okay, at times, like some of the Italian back row players, they're going to come up against better people at the breakdown. They're going to come against uh, a more abrasive, destructive back row this weekend. So whether the work that they did at the breakdown will happen again as cleanly as they did. But the intention to hold on to the ball, the intention to attack, and just... I think there was that, like, it's enjoyable to watch, so it's enjoyable to play, so let's go and do it again. Well, let's just dwell on that super try that you referenced, the Heaslip try, because that was a lot of fun to watch. I am wondering, is there anything that we did in that time? Maybe take us through, uh, if we can have people visualise for a second, what exactly happened. I'm just trying to work out, is there anything that we, we produced in that move that we couldn't, that there's any reason that we couldn't reproduce against Scotland. Maybe the Zebo offload. I mean, a lot of the rest of it is, is presumably stuff that we, well, see, we the, will the try. The start of it with the key to it was, I think Zebo's pace to sort of get half through the tackle and get that offload off. Maybe if there's a faster defender there, that doesn't happen. Um, and then there's other little subtle things like Trimble when they got the ball further up the field. There was actually an Italian defender trying to slap it out of his hand. And uh, he just twitched his hands lower and got the pass away really quickly. L- th- like four or five little things that mightn't happen in every game, but you link them all together and you have this amazing try. You wonder why it doesn't happen every week. But was there enough there in it to make you think that could happen against better teams, Jerry? 
Yeah, I know. This is always a question mark. You see, Ireland are damned if they do, damned if they don't. The more you pull away and put a team like Italy to sword like then the more almost it devalues the win in the eyes of some because then you concentrate more on how bad Italy were. The thing I would say about the key play in that, apart from having the confidence of 20 points to three up in the last minute of the first half to go for a short restart and a 50-50 restart when you know many teams might have kicked it long, just seen it out to go to half-time, 20 points to three up. Sexton's role in this try is threefold. He takes the he gets the restart on the money, which Ryan wins. And then after Jack McGrath takes it up, um, and Jamie Heasel does the clear out, he's on the ground when the ball is moved out. Sexton does the wraparound with Fergus McFadden, and then he's in the support play, and then he draws defender, creates a space inside for Trimble. But I think the key to it, obviously, was Simon Zebo's offload. Now, he beat Campagnaro on the outside. Campagnaro is probably the best 13-ish they've had in the professional era. He's no slouch. That's a decent thing. I thought... Zebo's acceleration when he hit the line and looked for space to, and then to free his hands. Yeah, I think he can do that. You know, I think he can do that against good players. And I think it's certainly worth having a look next weekend. Just the two fullbacks alone will be worth the admission money, the way they both play and the way they both defend. Um, but yeah, I think it's doable for, other, for, for lots of reasons. But yeah, I, the key was Zebo. And I thought he'd be a very good player on the outside in Campanero. Shane, what do you think? Yeah, I do. Um, I think... It was funny, like, they went for this short kick-off, got it back, but then they reverted to their exit strategy. So they hit it up, and then they got they got set for their position. But, like, we always say, are they too regimented? That That's a template that they played off. So they got it, they hit it up, and then they have the option when Johnny gets back into the position. It needs one individual to work within that framework and do something special, and that's what Zebo did. But I, I reiterate the point of uh, Jerry there when Johnny Sexton got the ball. He got it, held it, your man was turned inside out, mm. and then he gave the pass. Mm. Like, that's just innate. And, like, mm. for people watching that, you're just going, ah, oh, that's just a touch of class. Mm. And then when Andrew Trimble got it, he did very, very well because he had to ride a bit of a tackle, got his hands free, and then Fergus McFadden even made, nearly made a balls of it at the end by giving a crap pass. But he didn't. <laughs> but it was great effort by Jamie to get up off the ground just outside his 22 and strength. just run upfield. Did you see his, I did, apparently the, the wide angle of his run? And he can just about catch it in the replay in the slow motion. He's on the ground from the clear. And he clears out from McGrath. He's level with about five or six other forwards. And by the time he gets up in the 22, he's 40 yards clear of them. Because he just takes, what I don't know what you call it, would you call it a cheats line? A straight line yeah. up the pitch, just in case the ball comes that way. I think that's, Very few number eights in the world would have taken that run, I'd say. Well, there'd be a few, I'd say. Yeah, Ken Reid and the likes. That's yeah. the kind of quality yeah, of what he that did. Quality, though. Yeah. yeah, 100%. And I think that, what we were talking earlier on about, fellas that were hungry for tries. He was hungry for try and he just got up and he worked upfield. Now Josh was there as well but he was in more of a supporting line but you could see him calling it early when even Johnny got the ball. They were in space they were trying to communicate to get it out there. So he deserves an awful lot of credit. Really, really well and a well taken try and um, yeah, I do, I do genuinely think like, they just need to go for it. Like there is nothing to lose here. Well even um, against Scotland though because it it, it, it I mean, Scotland look a lot more dangerous than they have in a hell of a long time. They would lo- with Scotland would love France. if we played like that, wouldn't they? Oh, it'd be brilliant. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Scotland would you, be yeah you're going to play into their hands. Play, yeah. But, you, but you can play that like that. You can be aggressive, you can be abrasive, and you can be accurate. Ireland were accurate with their offloading, and they were accurate at times. But they have to realise that they can't get loose. Mm. But just because, they like, in fairness to Ireland, at the weekend, when they were 20 points up, 30 points up, whatever it was, they weren't throwing these stupid long passes. Maybe the last five minutes where they were kind of, it was like a hot potato, they were going, here, you you take it, you hit it up, you hit it up. And then eventually they got it. Like, that's 
That's pretty rubbish. Mm. They don't need that. But for 75 minutes of the game, they were very accurate. The rook was good. And a lot of the time you could see, like under the post at one stage, Nathan White came on and he absolutely drilled uh, Parise off the side. And we always talk about this corner of the rook where you try and deepen it. They did that about four or five occasions. And that allowed Standard to get his try. That allowed, uh, I don't know who scored that try uh, in and around that area. But like Parise's there bitching at the ref because he's taken out. But nobody sees that, that because was that was... That was a player creating space from a grass try. That was for oh, yeah, the first yeah, yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. And then the same happened when Nathan White came on. So you've got a load of substitutes that are all on the same page that are doing exactly what they do. And people go, oh, that's a good try by standard. But the hole was there because someone had done their job before it. So I thought it was just a very efficient performance. And uh, listen, it's going to be completely different against Scotland. And Scotland will be able to do what Ireland did to Italy to, to themselves next week, if that mm. makes sense. But... Uh, yeah, it's just I'm excited to look at it. It's going to be brilliant. Jerry, the Thomas Castaneda says England can win this tournament for many years to come, and they're very nerdy butcher to win against Wales the weekend. At least made it exciting. But do you think they can? Do you think they, they, we're looking at a dominant team now for the first time in a long time from England? Ooh, could be, I suppose. Um, they've unearthed a truly world class lock, but he was coming for a while, and mm. people knew about Maro Toje. Um, yeah, I don't think know. anyone knew. Well, okay, they, how they, good they, he was going to be in, no. England, in England? But you know the way I, you hear these players that get hyped a lot, and uh, maybe you were playing. A lot more attention than I was, but I kind of figured, oh, we'll wait and see how he goes in the Six Nations. But he's insane. Yeah, he's just, yeah. he's going to be there for a very, very long time. That's a work class. Like, he's keeping Joe Launchbury on the bench. That says it all. And, you know, it's just, he almost, I think, did more damage to Wales in that first half than any single English player, not just for the try he created, but pinching a line out with his hits. It just, a savage talent and yeah, a very a bright, intelligent well, bloke. Yeah. yeah, turn over the ground as I well. I think when you see second rows like that and his second row colleague Cruz, the, the effort and the work that they put in frees up the other guys around. And mm. I think that's what you saw. Jamie got into a lot of positions at first receiver at the weekend because CJ was carrying, getting over the game line because Josh was hitting probably double the amount of rooks than the other yes. back rower. Yeah. So when you have that balance, it works. And that's what's working for England. Those two second rows, are they're pretty exceptional. And he is just an incredible athlete. He's only a young kid and he's just this specimen who's able to mix it physically he's athletic in the line out and he's causing all sorts of problems and when you have second rows that get through that amount of work it just frees up your other assets like Vinopolo like Robshaw had a great game you know what I mean yeah, Robshaw usually got a really good tournament doesn't he like in the bottom of a rook and just working his socks off because that's his job in the previous team now he's got a bit more freedom to do what he does because of those two second rows they've, yeah. got, they've got a hard edge up front and a cutting edge out wide you know what I mean so it's just the perfect balance there. but we must remember they've always been contenders for the last four years they won four out of five they finished runners up I think four years in a row so they're all England are always going to be if you get above England there's a good chance you win the Six Nations title and that's not going to change for a long time to come the, the difference between Ireland, England and Wales over the last few years is so tiny that mm. almost the run of your fixtures can mm. decide the whole Six Nations yeah. championship Yeah, it's an imperfect tournament because of the imbalance of only playing each other once as a to twice, so yeah, this year it was. I always thought Ireland were going to finish third or fourth this season simply because of coming to terms with the post Paul O'Connell era on top of the post Brian O'Driscoll era, the hangover from the World Cup, losing to Argentina, but most of all, the six day turnaround between two games Wales up front at home and then France away. What the two teams you just knew there was going to be carnage, they were going to have to cop injuries from those two and to lose Sean O'Brien 20 minutes in to have the rain the second game. I just don't think much luck, and then the other factor as well. I was amazed looking at my stats. For 16 seasons in a row, John Hayes or Mike Ross played a tight head for Ireland. Started every game for 79 matches in a row. And we always feared what life would be like without either of them. And hey presto, in the first two games of this tournament, we found out... That's a bizarre run of luck, by the way. Isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, it probably took John Hayes about 30 
30 of those Six Nations matches to become a really good tight head at that level. But we always feared what would happen because the cupboard was so bare without them. And the value of a tight head and locking down a scrum, and you take Mike Ross and Marty Moore out of the first two games, look at the trouble they were in those first two matches. The two tries conceded both came from almost intolerable scrum pressure. But for that, they might have had two wins and we'd be looking at a completely different Six Nations. In the most shocking news of the weekend, lads, the, it turns out that there actually are some sighting commissioners working in the Six well. Nations. <laughs> I thought they were just out of there was, was some sort of a strike. I don't know what was going on. But they're around. Uh, Joe Marler has been cited for striking Rob Evans today. He also, Marler had to apologise to Samson Lee for calling him Gypsy Boy as well. He's under investigation as we, as we record this chat for that one. And Wales' Thomas Francis has been cited after the fingers and scraping his fingers across the face and eye area, I guess you'd say, of Dan Cole. Um, I know Shane Horgan and the rest of the RT panel, uh, Shane in particular was very strong in this after the after the game, Shane saying that, look, because citing commission because referees have been allowing things to go on the pitch, as happened again with this with this um uh, eye scraping, and because citing commissioners have often failed to follow up in this tournament, players are starting to think they can get away with these things. And even if, for example, uh, Thomas Francis does get cited, are you surprised that he wasn't punished on the pitch at the time? Yeah. Well, there was a penalty, but I mean... Yeah, it was funny punishment. because when it happened, I didn't see him looking down at Coles and looking where his kind of face was. I genuinely did think it was accidental. But whether it's accidental or intentional, if you make contact with the eye area, that's the rule. And speaking from someone who's made contact with the eye area, you know the rules. And like, unfortunately... Don't you kind of know where your hands are going you, to? You, to be fair, you probably do. Yeah, you probably do. And you could see he was going in to give him a good dunt with his shoulder and whether or not, it's hard to say. But it doesn't look good because Dan Cole, he, you could see him grimace and he did look like he was in pain. There has to be consistency and it was a bit of a cop-out, the terms or the phrases that the video Very ref and the ref strange, yeah. Like, yeah. just, come on. They even acknowledge that this will probably be looked at again after the yeah. game. But if you're acknowledging that the signing commissioner is going to be looking at it, do you not have to make a call? Are you fudging it there? There was only one camera angle, wasn't there? Another? Yeah. And there are more available to the, the actual oh, okay, okay. panel, I believe. So. But it was more just the way I felt there was a bit of a cop-out from mm. the TMO and the ref that they didn't say, they didn't make a proper call on it. Um, there has to be consistency because you're right. There has you, you can't have this at this level for people watching it, however amount of million watching it, and then that's going to be acceptable, just like the behaviour of Marler. Like the best thing he can do is just keep his mate quiet, keep his mate shut, and just get on with the game. He's a good player, but he has this—I don't know what it is—this kind of attitude that he's, I don't know, a tough man or whatever it is. He's a good player. He just needs to keep his head down because he's making a bit of a fool of himself. Yeah, well, Dylan Hartley's been behaving so well against a lot of people's expectations. Maybe mm. Marner yeah. feels somebody has to spice it up, but it's it's kind of madness, all right. What do we think about uh, about next weekend, about Scotland? Jerry, are you worried after their win against France? Ah, oh, you'd have to be. I mean, it just shows you the value of playing Italy. It's a great boost for confidence. It was for them, and it hopefully will be for Ireland. Um, and it shows you the value of getting them early up in the tournament as well, maybe, which Ireland have often done. Um, I think Scotland were one bad refereeing decision away from a World Cup semi-final and breaking up the Southern Hemisphere cartel and if that had happened we'd be looking at them in a completely different light. They needed the big win though. They needed they this did, win against absolutely, France to, to absolutely. really otherwise they needed a win in yeah. Italy which they got with style and then with they needed this win and they were favourites going into this game and they they got a little bit lucky maybe in some of the scrum, scrummaging decisions they got nine points off scrums the uh, Duncan Taylor try could have been disallowed probably should have been for a tug back but they made things happen and the big difference now between 
Scottish teams. You were talking about Scotland being able to come over and poop a party. Remember Crow Park last game? Ireland tried to play a really high tempo game out in the wide channels, offload, whatever, and got got beaten. Got you know um, Dan Park's late kick, and that was yeah. the end of Crow Park. This is an inestimably better Scottish team. You know, really is because they've got potency in their three quarter line. They've got they've got real finishing power, and they've um, and they've got William Nell who's just given their scrum so much more. They've got a solid scrum now, so I think they're a really dangerous team. You look at their results; they they could have beaten England. They were close to England than Ireland were. They were um, they they lost to Wales by one score, and you know they've handsomely won their last two games. So they're a real threat for sure. This is what it actually says in the in the in, in the table. It's a playoff for third place. Doesn't tell any lies. Shane. Well, I was going to say that Scotland winning that game maybe does Ireland a little favour in that us if we go and beat Scotland, there's credibility to our season. It feels like we've achieved something. Yeah, I think so. I think if you beat Scotland, the way they're performing at the moment, I think the players are so familiar with each other. Obviously, from Glasgow being quite successful over the last number of years, being there thereabouts, and then obviously winning it last season. And then you see Edinburgh maybe have fallen off a bit towards the end of the season, but they've got a good squad and they're dangerous. And they, for whatever reason, they don't get the results that maybe they could have got. But I think Ireland are very aware how dangerous they are and if they are loose. And like you said, there are memories of where they have underperformed. Scotland will not fear Ireland. Uh, as in terms of they know them, they know obviously the Munster, Ulster, Leinster, Connacht guys through the league and things like that. So they're very, very familiar with it. But I do think if we, like any team, you put them under pressure, we focus on the things that we try to get right every week. If we get line speed and put them under pressure, they won't have the ability and they won't have the time to maybe get outside breaks, get offloads. But if we stand back and we're a bit hesitant, mm. they're going to look very, very good. So the principle stays the same. Get off the line, put them under pressure, try and get in their faces, don't allow them space and then be disruptive and try and uh, not give them as much set-piece ball as they have been getting in games. But their back row is very, very good, confrontational guys, good over the ball, and they're very, very disruptive. So if they go with the same back row in terms of Josh, CJ and Jamie, they're going to have to have a very, very big game. And if we do, like in the past, you've seen Sean do a good job on the back row against uh, Scotland, and we usually end up winning the game. So I think that's a huge uh, area the, they that they probably generate on. the quickest ruck ball in the tournament, don't they, the Scots? So that is key, yeah. slowing that down in some way, shape, or form. Hundred percent, yeah. All right, there's the blueprint. Shane Jennings, Jerry Thorny, thanks a million. Cheers. Thank you. He's just a crying big baby. But you cannot call it a player, a baby. And we never said they are baby. He's just a crying big baby. And you cannot call him a player a baby. One element of the performance, Simon, that we only touched on there, well, in fairness, I think yeah, Shane Jennings talked in a little bit of detail about it, was Sexton's role in that wonder try. I'll stop calling it a wonder try at some stage now. And uh, But we didn't really delve into Sexton's performance in general. I know you've been quite impressed, even though maybe it was, was it the France game. There was certainly one game I felt he was 
little, he wasn't great. But you think he's done quite well considering everything that's been thrown at him, yeah. <laughs> including legal threats. A few of the print journals have touched on this, that his passing has gotten even better, I think, as he's gotten older. The width of it, the timing of it, his his choice of when to pass and who to pass to on those loop moves because people are starting to read them now, but he still seems to gain ground. He's made so many breaks, just individual breaks as an out-half in this tournament. But when you think of, of what he's faced, both from opponents saying he's the target, we're going to go at him from journalists, um, opposition coaches talking about his concussion issues, from legal threats um, to then those legal threats being cleared, being spoken about on the Late Late Show. He's had a child in the his second child. His, uh, his wife gave birth to a second child in the middle of this tournament. And he's still, he's come into this tournament uh, with Leinster playing badly, with no real form to go off. And he's back to where, as good as he's ever been, as Lions tour you think so? form was he, is back. W- was he not pretty poor against France? Am I, m- I th- remembering that game incorrectly? Th- there wasn't so much rugby played in that game. He wasn't at his best in that game, but in general over this tournament, I think he's been at his best. The Irish Times Second Captain's Football podcast is ready. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I want to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here? You're showing me, man. Well, and we had Andrew Mangan from Arsblog in the studio to talk to us about why this kind of March Arsenal collapse seems to be more painful than the previous editions of this show that we've seen. Uh, we're also going to talk. We're also going to talk to Miguel Valini, who was there at Old Trafford for the. West Ham, Man United, Man United, West Ham game, and the great goal by Dimitri Payet. Let's get over to Cheltenham. Mike Cattermall, presenter with After Races, is standing by. Mike, great to talk to you again. The festival starts tomorrow. We wouldn't normally focus our preview on the Fox Hunters' chase on Friday, but Victoria Pendleton, I mentioned at the top of the show, double Olympic champion, takes up a new sport and within a year is competing on its biggest day, certainly for an amateur jockey, the biggest race you can compete at. It's an absolutely amazing story, I would have thought, but I'm getting the sense that it's not being universally welcomed in the racing world. Well, I think you probably summed it up well there, Owen. Um, I think outside the racing world, I think people are captivated by the story. And um, the, the fact that she had a front-page uh, photograph uh, on the, you know, in the Times on Saturday morning was uh, testament to that. There's plenty of uh, coverage in the, in, in the weekend newspapers, interviews and all sorts of photographs and stuff. Um, but inside our sport, yeah, there has been a mixed reception. I think there's a... There's a feeling that, um, on the one hand, that it's great for the game and that it's getting plenty of great publicity. Um, Victoria, it seems as though she's really enjoying herself, which is great. Betfair, the sponsors, have got you know, loads of uh, coverage from it. On the other hand, um, there are a lot of people think that um, it's, it's uh, slightly uh, out of order in the sense that uh, there are plenty of other talented riders out there who would dream to get a chance uh, handed on a plate like has been to, to Victoria. Um, and perhaps have been denied an opportunity to ride in, in a race in which they've been building up for years to ride in. So, but look, overall, I think it's been um, a very exciting, a very uh, imaginative project. I heard originally that um, it was either going to be Victoria or Carl Fogarty, the, uh, the motorcycling champion, who was going to be asked to do the Switching Saddles uh, project. But in the end, um, I think Victoria's been a great signing for the game. Has she earned it over the year? How how good a jockey has she become or otherwise I, I, I have seen some people doubting her ability to well stay on a horse which is key but at the same time she did win her last race 
Yeah, she did. She and she won it well at Wincanton, didn't she? Um, look, there are better people out there than me to judge whether she's a good rider or not. All I know is she's done exceptionally well in such a short space of time. Never sat on a horse before, 12 months ago. Um, one thing she has in her favour is that she's, she, she's, she's, she's been the top athlete. You don't get to the top unless you're very driven and determined and tough, which I think Victoria is. Um, but there are better judges out there who think she's um, capable than me, who think she's capable of riding on Friday. There are some, like Steve Smith-Eccles, who's a former jockey and you know, jockey coach these days, and John Frankham. John's gone on record as saying that she's an accident waiting to happen. Um, all we can hope Friday, guys, is that she has a safe round and uh, she comes back and, and she stays in the game, which I think she will. Like she said that racing's, the bug has bitten her now. Um, the one thing I think they've missed a trick on here, the whole thing has missed a trick on the side of there should have been a charitable aspect to it. Right. I just think that maybe um, Betfair could have incorporated something along the lines of, um, and there will be a sizable contribution made to the Indian Jockeys Fund or to the Amateur Jockeys Association or something like that, just to appease everybody. Yeah. I can't see where there would have been any negativity on it at all then. Yeah, the thought of a, a, just a big bookie making, getting a lot of publicity out of it maybe doesn't sit well with everybody. But just on that point you're raising about the, what John Frankham said, for example, is there, uh, it is understandable in fairness and it is a dangerous sport. We all know that as, as cycling is a dangerous sport. But is, is the fear genuine that she could hurt herself and it could look terrible for racing? Or maybe is there an underlying fear among people in the sport that if she does really well and, and she, I don't know, she, she comes out of the blue and wins this race on Friday, it maybe makes being a jump jockey look a little bit too easy, which we all know it isn't. <laughs> well, that would be extraordinary, wouldn't it? Because um, it's the last thing that's easy is, because, is being a jump jockey and being a successful jump jockey. Um, the, the, other, the, the thing that could be interesting, uh, there are two aspects to this. Um, if she goes and wins this race on Friday, mm. I mean, she could. She could easily win. I don't think she will, but um, she, then, then the, the publicity from that will threaten the coverage of the Timico Gold Cup. There's no question about that, because it's a sort of story that will appeal to a lot of people outside of racing. I mean, the Gold Cup this year is one of the best I can remember for a long time in, in its strength and depth. It's fantastic. So there's that aspect. If she goes and falls um, um, and, and hurts herself, God forbid, then again, that's going to be another hugely negative um, story, which again could usurp the, the good stories about what else is happening out there on the track. So there is a, there is a slight anticipation and nervousness from us all, I think, come Friday. Um, so we're all wishing that she has a, a great experience, that she has a safe round and, um, and comes back, you know, and telling us all about it with that, with that great smile of hers. So, yeah. Well, you laughed, off my, you laughed off my original question, though, Mike. You don't think there's anything in that, that people involved in any sport l like to think that, it's, it, that their sport is probably the hardest to master and the idea that somebody comes in, albeit a double Olympic champion, and would get a win at Cheltenham. You don't think that there's a hint underlying this that people might just be a little bit, God, I prefer if, uh, I prefer if it was one of our own to win rather than an yeah, outsider. I'll on that. I see what you mean. Well, look, all I'll say to you is um, we know that if she does well on Friday, it doesn't mean to say that she's... She's cracked it being a jockey. You know as well as I do that, that every now and again on the golf course, we could hit a, a shot which would be as good as any pro could hit. You know, on the tour, Tiger Woods wouldn't have hit a better six iron into the green or something like that. And the new eye might fluke one day. But we also know that um, 
the bottom line is that we got lucky perhaps then and that the consistency and the, and the day-in, day-out requirements of becoming a jump jockey is, is, is something else, isn't it? Yeah, how has she got to this stage, Mike, so quickly? What, what's been the background once she, once she got involved there? As you said, it's in a way, it's a publicity stunt. It's it's backed by a big company. But yeah. they obviously, well, she as an athlete then had to get to a point where she's, she's actually good enough to compete at Cheltenham. Where did they send her? How did she How did she get to this point? Yeah, she's she's been riding out regularly at um, Lawney Hill uh, Stable. Lawney and Allen Hill are train uh, horse chasers and point-to-pointers up in the Oxfordshire countryside and uh, are great mentors and tutors to her. And She's been out there. She's been riding regularly. I mean, this has been her job for the past 12 months. Um, and as you know, she's getting paid uh, a six-figure sum for doing it. So <clears throat> there's no better incentive of getting up in the morning, you'd think, plus the challenge that is involved as well. But And that's why some people also are questioning the, the amateur element of Friday. I mean, the Friday's Fox Hunters is a great Corinthian sort of um, uh, landmark sporting event, isn't it? Uh, and some just might feel that it's been tainted by the fact that she's, she's been paid a lot of money to have taken up this challenge. But it's a different type of money for the publicity, I think, as opposed to being paid for the ride itself. The race she's in, as I say, it's a, it's a real big one for it's the, the biggest for all the amateur jockeys there. Um, you said she does have a chance of winning, albeit outside. I know Nina Carberry won it last year and she's the, she's defending it. Um, yeah. Defending that title this year, she seems to be the favourite. What, what, what do you think Pendleton's chances are? She's uh, she's on a Paul Nichols horse. On Pasha de Polder. Um, yeah. Well, he's a super jumper. Um, the th- thing about this race is it's, it's the exact replica of the Gold Cup course and distance. You know, three and a quarter miles, 22 fences. Uh, and Pasha de Polder's got to um, show that he stays the trip. Uh, and I, don't, I mean, the race he won at Wing Canton the other day when he made all the running was only two and a half miles. Um, and I, don't, I just don't feel that she'll that she'll, he'll have the, uh, the stamina to, to, to get around there. And the other thing about her as well, of course, I mean, she'll be incredibly fit now, Victoria. I mean, race riding fit. Um, and, but to, to complete for three and a quarter miles over 22 of the most demanding fences out there, it it's, won't be easy for her, which is why, you know, it's such a great uh, challenge and a great achievement for her to actually line up. Yep. I think. I think if she hadn't won that race at Wing Canton, I'm not sure we'd be talking today, to be honest. You don't think she would have actually even competed if she I hadn't got that win so. under her belt? She, She's had another ride since then, hasn't she? She got unseated on the flat. Mm. Um, I think the horse made a mistake and she lost her stirrups and fell off. And um, so, it, 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 so that adds sort of spice to the mix, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, there, there's no there's no guarantee that um, that, that she'll she'll uh, she'll get round next Friday, but let's hope she does. I mean, I think what will happen. I think she'll get a good spin for a circuit or so. Maybe the horse will uh, make a mistake. Maybe she might pull him up or something. I don't know. Let's just hope that she puts her own safety and the horse's safety first. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we, we've spent almost the entire time talking about Pendleton's, Pendleton. I should say. So obviously, the <laughs> the marketing shtick is working on chumps like me. Anyway, uh, Mike. Outside of that, have you got a big tip for the Gold Cup or anything else? Well, the Gold Cup, as I say, it's a race that you could um, go around in circles and pick a horse and it wouldn't finish in the first four. I mean, you've the two Dons, Don Don Cossack and Don Poli. You've got uh, the two horses owned by Rich Ritchie, last year's runner-up, Jacques Adam and Vautour, who's likely to be Ruby Walsh's mount, who's who's exceptionally talented. Uh, Willie thinks that he will stay. There are others in the business that don't think he's a certain stayer on Friday. I'm going to go for Don Poli. I just feel as though he's won twice at the festival so far. He's a Cheltenham sort of horse, and, and the way he keeps on finding a bit more, I don't think we've got to the bottom of him yet, uh, and I think he might just uh, be the one to beat on Friday. But, 
you, you, you know, even Q Card, the British uh, train Q Card has got a has got a great chance as well. It's a super race, isn't it? Absolutely. Listen, Mike Adamall, great to catch up with you and enjoy the festival. Thank you. Thanks, guys. You too. Thank you, Murph. What do you think? Regarding Victoria Pedal, do the critics within racing need to lighten up and enjoy a legendary sporting figure taking up the challenge, or are they seeing through this extremely elaborate ad for Betfair? Uh, I'm I'm leaning slightly towards the second of those are options. You? I am, yeah. yeah. I'm, but uh, hang on, you're telling me that they've got a problem suddenly with gambling sponsorship now in the horse racing business? No, not with gambling sponsorship in the horse racing business. I don't think gambling generally. I don't think there's a problem with gambling generally in horse racing. I think it's more the fact that uh, this the, the the big money that's backing Victoria Pendleton has taken the place, has allowed her to leapfrog the many talented amateur jockeys who never would get a chance to so ride in this race. So privilege based on wealth is yes. beginning to put a few <laughs> noses out of joint in the horse this racing This is community. the great egalitarian sport that we're talking about here, uh, Ken. You have to understand that. Yeah. I like seeing really top sports people try something different and try their hand at another sport. I, I applaud her for, particularly uh, applaud her for having the balls go after <laughs> being a jump jockey. Yeah. I mean, she's been a cyclist. She's been. Uh, it's not as you know. You need you need to be pretty uh, pretty brave for that particular pursuit as well. But I, I like to see it, and it doesn't sound like it's, it sounded like it was going to happen. Regardless, it wasn't uh, as we we're talking to Mike there. Who do you say might have been? Carl Fogarty. Carl Fogarty and it ends up being Victoria Pendleton so it's clearly something that's being pushed by uh, a bookies and you know been financed by a big company but uh, I'm, I'm comfortable enough I think in overlooking that myself so I'm sticking with the former I'm still excited by it Murph well listen on. maybe, maybe I'm wrong to be no no listen you're you're, uh, you're refreshingly free of cynicism on. that's what we love about don't you. know about that uh, but the GA weekend is worth touching on before we wrap this up Murph aside from the Rossi's marching on this time where are we going this week this is getting ridiculous where are we going this week says um, Carl Craig mm. uh, you're up to letter Kenny there Carl. can do can do I'll go up and kick a goal a few points there I don't, I don't know what set, uh, set of uh, of trash cans we're up against this week, <laughs> but uh, we could handle it. And I mean, they're, like they're playing absurdly good football. Yeah, I mean, the it's one thing you know to have they've won four games. They also have the best scoring average in Division One, even though like Dublin are apparently running away with this league. Can't be beaten. Can't even haven't even gotten out of second or third. Ross Common have a better scoring average than Dublin. <laughs> uh, and I mean. It is. It's it's, it's extraordinary. Now, now I I think that um, there is there is the issue that they're taking it a, they're taking it a lot more seriously than the teams they're playing against. They're taking the competition as a whole. I mean, Donegal couldn't have taken a game more seriously than they took the game against Kerry last last week. Uh, I think it's fair to assume they did not put that level of uh, commitment and energy into the the game yesterday, and it's a pity because this is a brilliant competition that is currently being played out uh, in front of our eyes over the last couple of weeks. I mean, all of these games, uh, like, it's been, it's, it's, it's so even that, you know, every single week there should be these really interesting, intriguing games and yet you can't be sure which teams are taking it seriously on any given week, which mm. just, you know, demeans the whole thing kind of beyond, beyond repair. I mean, the, like, the Hurling League is taken a good bit more seriously, I think, than the, than the Football League. And if you look at the results in Division 1A, I've, I mean, we were talking about scoring average at Roscommon there, but this, the scoring average in the Hurling League, Dublin are top of Division 1A 
and after they've uh, Dublin, Kilkenny, Waterford have all played, uh, have all won three games of their four of the four that they've mm. played, and Dublin's scoring average is plus eight, and that has them on top. Waterford have won three games and their scoring average is plus three. Kilkenny have won three games, their plus uh, their uh, scoring average is plus six. So I mean, the games are so tight uh, and so entertaining. Uh, in and of themselves, that it's just kind of a pity. This isn't. This is the sport we should be watching in summer, n- not now. Yeah, I don't want to mention the no. The I word restructuring, Murph, no, I but, uh, and I, I don't either. It's just it's, it's, it's but no, yeah, no. I I take your point regarding the quality of it in recent weeks, and even the hurling at the weekend. There was the humdinger between Kilkenny and Cork. Yeah, Cork was brilliant. You I saw mean, Brian Cody had a big fist pumping celebration. There's that was a big one for them, and Joe Canning was safe to say. Uh, close to her at his very best against yeah. Uh, yeah, ridiculous uh, absolutely brilliant one, one eleven, eight freeze sideline cut in the last minute from I'm going to say taking the angle into account probably 65 yards I would say 70 yards um, one point that had I think it was Marty Morrissey in commentary extremely excited and as Chef and Henry Sheffman was saying afterwards he was right to be because it was he took this ridiculous one plucked it out of the air on the hurl went by a man then saw somebody else coming at him and just managed to manage to get the sitter so high, get his hurl up and get the sitter high up that he he didn't so much flick it over him, but he just made it impossible mm. for that defender to get at him. Takes on another defender, just swerves by him. And these are all Tipperary defenders, you know. Some, some okay, they can be open at times, but mm. some pretty top level players. And he just slots it over the bar with these pretty incredible stuff. Yeah, playing like yeah, that. no, it was uh, it was pretty good. Uh, and and even after all that, I mean, Gola did find pretty entertaining ways to draw their games yesterday. <laughs> Um, because uh, Tipperary went down the field, Bubbles Bar hit a brilliant uh, point to level it at the death. Goalway, the footballers were eight points down with uh, 12 minutes to go and got a goal in the seventh minute of the four allotted minutes of injury time. So that went down well. Minimum four minutes. Well, that's what it is, certainly. Yeah. Well, that's what, no, that's what they say. It would be a minimum of four minutes, and that's how it, that's how it proved. A uh, reminder, we won't have our podcast out on Thursday. We'll delay that until Friday, because Thursday is St. Patrick's Day. So Friday we will have two brand new, fresh podcasts, which will be reacting to the All-Ireland Club finals, and also the mother of all second legs between Liverpool Manchester United. We'll look ahead to Ireland Scotland a little bit more probably that day as well. Any plans for St. Patrick's Day again? I'm going to go and see if there's any of this centenary type stuff on around the town. There's some stuff on, right? I hope so. Uh, well, yeah, it's probably more Easter Sunday, wouldn't it? But uh, nevertheless, I'm sure there will be some uh, centenary nonsense. My, uh, my non-drinking in-laws are coming. Oh, great. <laughs> are coming to the house on St. Patrick's Day. So uh, if anyone has any uh, potential tips for something to do, uh, you know, with non-drinkers on St. Patrick's Day, you know, hit me up on Twitter, everyone. Stay, stay in the house. <laughs> stay in the house. Uh, barricade myself into the house. Yes, and that's the plan. That's the plan at the moment. Though I was hoping that maybe there could there could be an alternative. Well, the parade always looks so shiny and well structured when you're watching it on TV. Looks better you're, on TV than yeah, in real life. Well, you're not. Well, no, I'm not saying that the parade isn't good in real life. I'm just saying that the if you wander more than fifty meters from the parade in any direction. Mm. you start seeing people who are in and around the parade but not really focused on what's going on mm. there. They're more interested. Yeah, their, their interests lie elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, we're just about... We're not out of time, actually, because we technically we could just talk for another hour. Mm. But I'm sure you've got stuff to do. Yeah. And uh, we probably have things to do. Don't we know should what they probably are, exert some sort of editorial control. Yeah, that's this. what I'm saying here. Thanks very much, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thanks, Thank Ken. you, Karen. Thank you, Owen. Thanks for listening. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home.